I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. You're just back home by the look of things. I do enjoy working from home, uh, so I'm working from home today. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, do you guys have kind of like a hybrid thing going on, or is it more or less each to their own based on what best suits them? It is uh, free range, choose your own adventure. Um, most people do, I would say, work in the office now, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the team is across Sydney, um, Melbourne, and Auckland, but we do have a few folks that live in Orange and Hobart and um, places uh outside of Sydney, Melbourne, and Auckland. Awesome. Awesome. No, I love that. It's very uh, in line with, I suppose, Matt Mullenweg's ethos over at WordPress and Automatic, you know, providing people get stuff done and the workflow suits them. That's all that really matters, you know, and it's why it's disconcerting sometimes to see all this stuff going on in the corporate world where people are being slowly but surely urged to come back five days a week. Crazy. Luck to them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Good luck to them. Um, mate, I've always wondered your surname. It sounds a little bit Eastern European. I'm going to take yes. a guess. I'm going to guess Slovak or Czech. Ooh, Slovenian, uh, which is very close. Uh, uh, so um, We got the first well four done. letters right. But we're, we're yeah, former, yeah. former Yugoslavian brothers then. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and then uh, the pronunciation is uh, Shavak. Uh, so Shavak. Pretend, that, pre- pretend the C is an H and, and that's how you get that. That's it. That's it. Both parents from Slovenia or? Uh, dad's side of the family and then uh, mom's side of the family, uh, Poland and the Ukraine. So Beautiful. Um, very very uh, Eastern. The general European. area. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, I saw from your Twitter, mate, I, it looks like you might be a Phoenix Suns fan. Uh, I'm a general NBA fan, okay. Uh, okay. so uh, I, I I always love following the Aussies. Uh, and Jock Landale um, had a great uh, season with the Phoenix Suns, and in particular got like a great run in the playoffs. So um, I, I I used to live in New York, so I support the uh, New York Knicks from wow. that point of view. Um, That's a bad uh, choice, man. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good mates with Mike Kenner Brooks, and he is uh, a part owner in the Utah Jazz, so that's that's uh, also um, a favorite team. Perfect. Love it, mate. Love it. Um, well, let's just keep on rolling, mate. Uh, you've got the full hour. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I mean, today, most people will know you as the founder of Startmate, Blackbird. But, you know, let's wind the tape back, Nikki. Like back when you were a teenager, say when you were 13, 14 years old, what did you want to be growing up? Originally, uh, I think I wanted to be a commercial airline pilot. Um, yeah. I, I loved uh, I, I loved aeroplanes. I loved building more model aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was big into radio-controlled cars uh, yeah. back then. Um, and so I uh, lo- loved loved aeroplanes and, and wanted to be a commercial pilot. Uh, never that, that didn't last until the end of high school um, because I never applied for anything to do with um, aviation uh at, at university but um yeah. that's probably the, the earliest memory i have of, of wanting to do something nice one well you're still young mate so there's plenty of time in case you want to do that at some point i think it's the uh the singer from from iron maiden became a certified commercial airline pilot at the age of like 45 or 50 and now flies the band around the world in their ed force one and it's got the iron maiden artwork on the side of the plane and all that sort of good <laughs> stuff so maybe a blackbird plane in the future it, it, it rings yes, true with well, the name well nice the name 
The name is uh, uh, after an aeroplane. Uh, Blackbird uh, was a uh, the world's fastest fighter jet. Uh, and it's an interesting story from the point of view that Lockheed Martin tried to build one, spent billions of dollars, uh, couldn't build the world, world's fastest mm-hmm. fighter jet. Uh, and then a small team broke away uh, and, and created what's now Skunk Works um, project and uh, built the Blackbird uh, fighter jet. And uh, it still remains today as the, the world's fastest um, fighter jet. I think they built it maybe in the in the 70s or something like that mm. and, and still the fastest today. That's interesting. The idea it? of you know small teams getting something done versus um, uh, the the big teams not getting something done. Absolutely, and the big teams can have all the resources and brand capital and networks in the world, but the one thing they lack that most startups possess is uh, speed. And henceforth, we get Blackbird. Um, but uh, picking up where the story left off, so I wanted to be a commercial airline pilot. That didn't, obviously, it's not something you pursued, finished high school, and then went off to UNSW, and you studied what I see as a Bachelor in Economics, Commerce, and Computer Science back in 2001. Looked like you were going to go up down the traditional sort of route. You became an assistant stockbroker at uh, my old employer, Macquarie Bank, which, funnily enough, mate, I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn, as you can tell, you were there for seven months, which is exactly the amount of time that I was there before I jumped out to pursue entrepreneurship. <laughs> what happened, mate? Why did you leave? It, it was um, uh, it was a holiday kind of part-time job uh, working in, in supporting one of the uh, client advisors there, Clara Yago. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so it was um, more a kind of uni casual job uh, than anything more formal or grand uh, than, than, than that. So, um, you know, really enjoyed it, really enjoyed getting to know the business and the, the clients. Uh, uh, but um, I, I would say uni job is, is probably the best way to describe that one. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we'll jump ahead from the uni job and uh, you were, your first sort of foray into entrepreneurship was a business called Bookmark Box, right? Which uh, it looks like you built that and flipped it off in the period of like 12 months. That's a- it, it was a crazy time. It was, um, if you rewind back to 1998, it was the beginnings yeah. of that that internet um, dot, com boom. Uh, dot com boom bust uh, hysteria. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was an 18 year old, nine, maybe 19 year old kid uh, uh, starting my first uh, attempt at entrepreneurship. Um, the, the company itself is probably only famous for the person it was done with, which is Mike Adam Brooks, who went on to found um, Atlassian rather than anything yeah. that. The bookmark box accomplished or, or um, uh, was, but it was um, it was an incredible journey for me, and um, you know certainly solidified uh, uh, my love of technology and business and startups and the 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 notion that this is exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And so mm-hmm. I learned so much um, through the bookmark box, um, and um, uh, certainly pointed me in my career direction. Uh, but yeah. it was go to woe um, about. 12 months, um, you know, we were two 19-year-old kids. Uh, we launched a product. We had 50,000 users, 8 million bookmarks. The idea is that you could um, uh, uh, add and organize your bookmarks across any different computer. Back then, um, you had a different school computer versus a work computer versus a home computer. And um, it also served as a signal that um, uh, a page that was bookmarked was worthy of attention and web spam was a big problem back then. And so... Yeah. And we started getting into um, a, a kind of community search engine that was driven by these bookmark signals, um, uh, but you know, uh, uh, run over by the the 1999 dot com boom. People were raising in the US uh, thirty million dollars on a pre seed round. Um, yeah. We raised thirty thousand uh, dollars from 
uh, you know, friends and friends and family. And um, uh, we were we had a knife in a gunfight, and so we decided to retire and and um, sell to one of the other competitors. Sell is a very grand word as well. Um, right. It was only a small business, and um, uh, it, it it was a successful result, um, but like was a financial rounding error and um, nothing. Uh, substantial from from uh from that uh, attempted entrepreneurship but um as i said um the learnings and the the people and the uh just just the the sense of this is this is what i wanted to do with my life um i will be forever grateful for yeah yeah and uh i mean it's interesting because you say back then there was a lot of spam and this is like 98 99 you mentioned and that that was at a time when you could game search engines by just loading the background with say the word cars for example in black text on a black background and so if you search for cars that would come up but it could be a porn site or something like that wild yeah, time, yeah. people so. like basically just put online casino in the title and they would rank for the online casino um keyword on google which i think was again like google's um success was as much to do with solving that web spam problem at the time because there were there were hundreds of other search engines um uh, at the time and, and google was just starting to rise up um yeah. at that time yeah and uh so you didn't continue with entrepreneurship you actually jumped back into the working world or the uh you know white collar gainfully employed working world. You had an analyst job ever at Jupiter Research for a few years. What can you tell me about that and how that sort of developed your thinking when it came to technology and startups? It was um, a wonderful job in terms of uh, the job is to talk to all of the best minds um, in the technology industry um, and as an analyst. And and, and we also organized events and had uh, uh, sort of conferences and breakfasts and uh, ran a few newsletters and then the the research clients. And so you got to speak to the CEOs of all of the uh, biggest online media companies and online technology companies and work specifically in the uh, search industry when I when I moved to New York. So I got to meet all of uh, the senior folks at Google and Yahoo and AOL and so on and so forth. So it was, it was such a job that um, uh, where you got connected to those great minds um, by default with the, the role of the job. So I think... Um, Media in general um, was just great for learning and and learning from those um, uh, types of people, uh, which um, again I, I really appreciated and felt um, that I got to continue on my vertical learning journey um, through that uh, through that role. And um, it's it's I think the only job um, I've ever had uh, that that I had to like interview for and and, and actually get. Uh, so um, uh, we'll always have fond memories of it. <laughs> Fantastic. I think the last one I had to interview for was Macquarie back in 2012. So going back a little while now. Um, but that was kind of it. And then Startmate and Blackbird came along. So typically when someone say jumps into the world of say venture capital or starts an accelerator program, it could be because they built startups themselves and they've kind of got to that point where they want to help other startups grow. You kind of did that with, you know, your first foray with Bookmark Box. You then became an analyst. I mean, what was the sort of moment that preceded that? Like, what was the seed in your mind that became Startmate Accelerator? Why did you effectively decide to start that back in 2010? Well, there was um, there was actually one more chapter to the career uh, before Startmate, which was right. uh, a startup called Home Thinking. It did not work out. Um, it was a real estate search engine that sort of ranked uh, real estate agents by their past sales history and, and, mm -hmm. and consumer reviews and, and so on. And through that um, company, I was living in New York. Um, I got I was sort of visiting San Francisco on a regular basis. And so I uh, got to meet uh, really interesting founders on that 
what they called the Web 2.0 wave of yeah. uh, consumer um, generated content, um, or these are some of the the, the, the names it had uh, back. And so I got to meet like the founders of Trulia and Zillow and Yelp and 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 um, appreciated sort of like what top quality um, uh, startup founders were like and, and how they built their companies. And so had that knowledge, uh, I'd moved back to Australia um, in, I think it was towards the end of 2009. Um, and so as I began kind of meeting people, reconnecting with uh, uh, people I'd known in Sydney, um, it was just this... Um, uh, stark realization that um, all of the people that I was meeting in Sydney were just as good as the people I had known um, in San Francisco and New York um, at the time. And um, almost from the point of view of um, like, this is actually the best opportunity um, uh, I've seen in terms of uh, already uh, great successful people and, and, and brimming with new uh, interesting people with interesting ideas um, and no one really paying attention in obviously San Francisco, people pay attention to interesting startup ideas versus in Sydney in um, 2009 and 2010, people were not paying attention to interesting people with interesting ideas. And so just from a uh, uh, great need and um, a great opportunity point of view, um, that 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 was one, uh, that, that was the selfish motivator. Um, then also, I think, um, so normally when you start an accelerator, you start a VC fund, you're actually successful um, yourself. Uh, that wasn't the case uh, with me, but... Um, the observation uh, that, that resonated was um, all of the best people that I'd learned from in the US were other founders at, at a similar kind of stage of the journey or even one stage uh, ahead. And so taking that and applying it to um, a start made in the beginning, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily that I needed to be the the, the wizard or the expert or the uh, know-it-all. Um, it was build a community of other founders to to help this next generation. That That's really the magic of Silicon Valley when that happens is um, someone starts a company, is successful, helps the next generation. And so bringing that to Startmate um, meant that, you know, I, in effect, didn't need to know anything. Um, I knew a little bit, um, but I didn't know to need to know anything and I didn't need to be successful. And so with that approach, um, uh, we could still be very helpful to companies um, by surrounding themselves with, with, with a community of fellow founders. Um, and that was the beginning of Startmate. Startmate was a way for me to kind of learn investing and begin um, angel investing uh, myself. Uh, it was two days a week for three months of the year uh, in those first iterations. So it was a part-time um, kind of project. Uh, and then just very quickly, um, you know, success isn't, success is best described as like slapping you in the face. Um, and from the very first um, uh, step of Startmate, um, it was just very clear there was a great need, um, a great opportunity um, and everything uh, happened very quickly and very successfully. And so um, uh, uh, leading into that, um, the next step was Blackbird and and Blackbird was a way for me to uh, become an investor uh, full-time and to uh, channel all of my efforts um, into into that pursuit. And, um, and, and, and certainly things have, have worked out from there. Absolutely. And uh, you're absolutely right though. You don't necessarily need to be someone who's had a billion dollar exit as an entrepreneur to start a venture capital fund and be and start a successful one. Ultimately, you need to be helpful. And in terms of whether it's an individual or a company, to get the best out of someone, you've got to create an environment where they can be their best, right? Surround them with great people, give them access to resources and capital that they need to succeed, um, and give them access to knowledge. And that's essentially what Startmate and later Blackbird was effectively all about. And you've built this amazing network of people now, and we'll get to the team a little bit later, that's kind of 
more or less the foundation for the success of the startups that come through Blackbird's portfolio. Um, but you know, going going back to say 2012, that first fund, um, I imagine it was what 10 odd million dollars back then, the first one. It was 29, uh, 29? million dollars. Uh, it took um, more than two years to raise. Uh, so yep. we, in, in, when raising a venture capital fund, what you can do is do a first close. And I think the first close was something like $15 million after mm -hmm. about a year and a so, year or so into it. And we, um, when you do a first close, you can open the doors, you can start investing money. And, and then um, to complete the fund, you can leave it open for another year and then yep. you keep adding commitments to it. Um, so uh, the first one was uh, about two years in the making, $29 million. We had to meet 500 people. Um, you can start a venture capital fund if you're unsuccessful, but it's quite hard. Um, and yeah. you definitely, um, it's better if you are already successful and you do already have that network, it's a lot easier to to start a venture capital firm. So it was, it was um, uh, a difficult beginning, but once the snowball uh, started rolling, um, uh, yeah. it all came together. And, you know, it was very hard to raise, but actually that's, the perfect time to raise a venture capital fund when um, uh, uh, it, the, this sort of cup of water in the desert moment um, in 2012, there weren't, as I mentioned, um, very many people interested in technology startups in Australia. And so when we did have the fund um, in terms of like marketing and um, uh, it, it was, as I said, a cup of water in the desert, people came to you um, uh, enthusiastically. And um, that was right at the time where a lot of uh, the best global software companies were were getting started. Our uh, Canva was our second uh, investment. Uh, we invested in Culture App and Safety Culture and Propeller and Scheduler and all these wonderful software companies um, around that time. And so, um, even though it was hard to raise, it was the best time to to have a venture capital fund in absolutely. In Australia. And I guess for people that are raising now or looking to raise now in this market, it's more or less the same thing where. It's a down market. Back then, you were coming off the GFC. Now we're coming off, or well, not coming off it. We're in this down market. It's a tough time to raise. A lot of, um, you know, prospective LPs are seeing their portfolios of stocks get marked down, and therefore they're suddenly finding themselves with an unbalanced portfolio where they've got a lot more exposure to VC than they'd like, and therefore they might be a bit more tight-fisted. But for the right opportunity, money will always flow to the to the good opportunities but it might take a bit of time. And like you said, it took two years for you to raise that first fund. Um, say for every 10 meetings you had, Nikki, back then, how many said yes? Uh, well, um, 96 people said yes out of 522 meetings. So it was roughly one in five meetings uh, people yep. would say yes. And actually what I've realized is um, in any kind of fundraising, if you're a VC trying to raise a fund, if you're a startup trying to raise a, a round of capital, um, it's more an exercise of surfacing a believer than, than convincing someone. You don't like sort of, um, sort of like Dragon's Den where everyone's like super critical and ready to say gotcha and, um, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of negatively inclined. Um, it's sharing your vision of what you hope would come true and then seeing if that resonates with someone. And if it does, they, they tend to say yes very quickly. And, and a lot of the yeses were in that first meeting um, of a coffee or, or what have you. Um, even as we've uh, raised more and more money from bigger and bigger um, uh, uh, funds and so on, um, it's always very clear in the beginning um, if someone is going to say yes or not. That That's a reflection. Um, we spent so much time uh, in the beginning on um, you. The other thing is that you get yeses, but then you, then you get non-yeses. Um, so you, you would love to get a no. A no is a straightforward, like, Hey, we met yeah. up. It's not for me. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, X, Y, Z reason. Um, that that that's actually 
you know, the second best thing you can get uh, from a meeting. Um, if you get like, I'm not sure, I need to be convinced, um, let me dive in deeper. Um, and then, you know, 10 meetings later, they're like, um, oh, I'm not really investing in technology. They knew that at the first meeting, but, you know, the the, the 10 meetings or the worst is um, look really keen, follow up, and then eventually it sort of peters out into a ghosting, you know, hey, just following up, seeing how you're uh, thinking about it. Can I help yeah. you make it? Is, is there any more information I can share to help make you make your decision? And no reply, no reply, no reply. So you certainly remember um, those people and um, uh, the best is a yes, the second best is a no, and the worst is the the, the not yes or no the, the, the well the, the counterfeit yes more or less or the counterfeit no where it's not really a no it's not really a yes it's somewhere in between i think chris voss who wrote the book never split the difference former um, fbi detective i believe mm. um talked about that counterfeit uh yes where you get this like I, i've run a consulting firm for the past eight years and selling to big corporates same sort of thing like yeah now this sounds really good amazing we'll take this back to the team we'll have a conversation we'll talk next week and next week becomes next year next year becomes never right and that happens so often but the more you play that game the more you can kind of determine who's actually legit and who's not and you get really good at just asking okay if this isn't for you let me know why like why not is yeah. it the price is it the social proof is it you the, the you know that we haven't done enough work in your industry like what is it so we know so that we can get better and yep but it takes a lot of humility and sometimes people just aren't willing to ask those questions they'd rather just protect their ego with the counterfeit yes than hear the critical difficult feedback yep 100 percent um uh agree just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back one thing separates okay venture returns from great venture returns deal flow do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Um. So with respect to that, so you said you raised that first fund, $29 million. Of course, since then, um, you've gone on and raised another four funds. The most recent one was Australia's biggest venture fund, from what I can tell, a billion Australian dollars, which is about 640 million US dollars. And that closed, may have closed, or maybe it was publicized back in November of 2022. Um, so like you said, back then you were dealing with... Um, you know, in 2012, you're dealing with high net wealth individuals, whereas now a fund of this size, you're raising from super funds, uh, pension funds, as, as you might say in, in the United States, but basically the likes of Australian Super, Host Plus, Australia Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Future Fund, New Zealand Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, the landscape has completely changed. And I remember back at 2012, like the VC landscape here, it probably wasn't more than 150 odd $150 million in mm. uh, dry powder in the VC scene. Now it's billions. What's changed, mate, in the last 10 years that big super funds are opening their doors to, to, to VCs? The, the dream came true. There is yep. um, a vibrant uh, Australian ecosystem of, of startups. You have um, two generational companies in the form of Atlassian and Canva, which are both billions of dollars of revenue and um, lots and lots of free cash flow and are unequivocally um, great success stories. And so 
when you get success on that scale, um, that that is industry defining. Um, venture capital is a strange asset class where the 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 winner, the single most successful company, defines a whole uh, industry and um, even as a rough rule of thumb, a single company in a single decade will account for the majority of returns. So if you think about um, Atlassian getting started in the first decade of this century and then Canva getting started in the second decade, um, in each of those decades, uh, Canva accounted for more than 50% of all of the uh, market cap of every single startup started in that period. Um, in the first decade, Atlassian um, accounted for more than 50% of all of the startups created in that first decade um, market cap. And so that's a strange, uncomfortable concept for people to get their, their minds around. There's... Um, a wonderful book on the history of the venture capital industry called The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby. Um, and The Power Law is this concept of uh, one company uh, counts for the majority of um, all, all companies. And then even the second um, best company accounts for the majority of the remaining 50% and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, if you look at the scale of those successful companies, um, that's what really determines um, the size of an industry and the size of um, capital going in at the seed round and, and so on and so forth. So with uh, two uh, clearly generational companies, I'd say Afterpay was on the way to uh, to reaching that status um, of a generational company and with you know maybe five or six more years um, would, it, would have got there. And so when you have this sample of companies, um, People are very confident to say, "Let's let's see if the next generation of that ecosystem can produce, um, you know, one every five years instead of one every ten years or one every uh, year, um, ultimately um, uh, over time." And 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 that's what invites um, uh, more and more institutional capital, both locally and 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 also globally. I think um, people recognize that you can create the best companies in the world outside of Silicon Valley, um, and then people are also increasingly uh, uh, comfortable with. The notion that you could create the world's best venture capital firm outside of Sand Hill Road and 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 the returns of uh, people like Blackbird and, and and others around the world um, are not you know the best in Australia um, they're the best in the world and and there's examples across uh, Brazil and Sweden and so on and so forth of of these great firms that have um, risen with their individual ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely, and I think those proof points that we've had are just so important, particularly when trying to um, convince or at least, uh, as you said, surface the believers in the superannuation um, industry to, to open their, their wallets. And, you know, there's no shortage of proof points in the past 10 to 15 years of companies that have gone on and reached that billion dollar valuation. Some of them have dropped below that recently, but still, you know, whether it's Canva, who's now worth over over 20 billion and reached 40 billion at one point, but Employment Hero, Big Commerce, AWOLX, CultureAm, Safety Culture, who you mentioned earlier, SiteMinder, you know, the list goes on. Um, and it's just been like every other month up until, you know, the market kind of tapered off last year, you were reading about a new Australian unicorn. I think the most recent one I remember reading about was uh, Immutable X in, in the Web3 space, which I think they were valued at about three odd billion dollars last year. Um but before we go on, mate, one thing I did want to touch on with respect to raising capital, so maybe backpedaling a touch here, but you did say it was one in five, a lot of knockbacks. One thing that I'm sure everybody listening to this, whether they're selling consulting services to a corporate, whether they're a startup raising capital, whether there's someone that wants to start their own venture fund and gets a lot of knockbacks from prospective LPs, that belief in yourself starts to get questioned. 
and we fall into what we might want to call, you know, the trough of disillusion or just this sense of imposter syndrome can creep in. What was that like for you? Because I imagine in the, the early days, there might have been a little bit of that. And how did you push through? Yeah, I've thought about this because, you know, people ask what was the, the you know, the, the most fragile moment of Blackbird or what was the low point in the, in the, in the journey. And, and um, I, I, I don't recall any really low points. And even in the beginning, I'd say the most fragile is uh, it was very unlikely that we got the first fund up and running. Um, looking back, um, the, the 2023 version of me um, looks back on the 2012 version of me and, and, and says, wow, that was, um, that was an unlikely lucky um, uh, event that it all came together Um but we didn't, uh, back in 2012, we didn't sort of think that way. And even in the face of all of that rejection, we just felt so strongly that this was needed and um, uh, we were going to do it in whatever form, in whatever way, it, you know, if it wasn't a $29 million fund, it would have been a $15 million fund. If it wasn't 15, it would have been five. And there was just such a, um, uh, almost like uh, naivety. And we just didn't think about not, we didn't think about failing or we just thought, um uh, we would keep meeting people until we until we got it up and running. Um, uh, there was just definitely that that attitude. Um, uh, I would say, in terms of dealing with um, rejection and, and and so on, um, you should be always be adjusting um, your pitch to new information, to questions from people, yeah. um, and and like a process of um, you're probably getting rejected because you're not um, speaking to the right customer uh, profile of of mm -hmm. the product that you're. That you're selling and um in our case um, most of those people who said yes were technology founders themselves that had created um a, a company from australia and uh that pitch to them sort of appealed to their younger self their, their self when they were just starting out so um they knew that um this community of like-minded founders would have been so helpful in 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 their early days and um they also know uh knew that um obviously because they had generated wealth, um, uh, what a beautiful business a software company um, can become with recurring revenue and so on. And so I think um, uh, it was understanding um, uh, who to pitch to and then who the ideal customer of that product was. We were way too, we were never, we were two unsuccessful people, uh, three unsuccessful people um, uh, 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 sort of pitching. Uh, we weren't going to get institutional funding, um, uh, family offices. We didn't have any connection to um, general wealthy people. We didn't have any connection to. So it was really uh, technology founders um, uh, uh, that that we were having success with and just sort of doubling down. And we were very fortunate that um uh, most of those uh, people did believe in us and um, introduced us to other people and 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 then so on and so forth. And um, yeah. the, snow I think the snowball rolls. You made a, a few good points there. One of which is it's easy for someone who's pitching and getting rejected to think that maybe something is wrong with the pitch. And that may well and truly yep. be the case. Well, probably is true. Yes. Uh, probably so is true. That. Yes. Yeah, probably yeah. is uh, true. Um, but at the same time, yeah. maybe you're just pitching to the wrong audience. Uh, and maybe your pitch is actually completely fine, uh, but you're targeting super funds when really you're raising a $10 million fund and sh you should be targeting high net wealth individuals who maybe just exited uh, from a startup. And and so 
that's something that people really just need to to reflect on. But um, as, as you mentioned, you know, Blackbird has since gone on to make some of the um, biggest investments in the startup ecosystem here in Australia in the past ten years. One of which was Canva, got in early there. Um, others, Bug Crowd, Coinjar, Culture Amp, Fable Foods. We um, actually had Michael Fox on the podcast a couple of years ago as he was just getting that into um, Woolies and Coles and all the rest of it. Um, Honey, Red Bubble, Safety Culture, numerous others. And uh, I guess the question that I have for you um, on that, the lifeblood of any VC fund really is getting access to quality deal flow. Um, now, of course, you've got the Startmate um, Accelerator, which is, I imagine, one of the, the pillars behind that deal flow. But what other things do you guys look at when it comes to generating quality deal flow um, and just putting the brand front and center when it comes to uh, the startup ecosystem? Now, of course, it's easy to say now Black, Blackbird's got that brand in Australia, but say you were starting again in 2023 and you had no brand, what would you do to build that deal flow? Mm. I think, um, uh, as I said, when we started, uh, there was no capital and to have capital was actually new and uh, different and interesting. And and so um, yeah. having a fund interested in that kind of company uh, and then communicating that you are uh interested in, in global software companies built in a certain way and sharing your philosophy and sharing your love of what kind of um, ambitious companies, um, you know, you would hope to meet and, and, and so on and so forth. So you publicly sharing what you'd love to invest in um, uh, sounds silly, but um, lots of people don't do it. Um, uh, then um, reputation is, is um, built. Uh, this is a great quote of uh, not mine uh, built in um, drops and lost in buckets. Um, and unless you have that dedication every day of building your reputation and doing the right thing and being straightforward and believing in people early and um, uh, doing what you're going to say you're going to do. Uh, like, unless you have a dedication to that day by day, you can't get to a good brand and a good reputation over 10 years. And so every single day, you have to have that mindset of brick by brick building um, a reputation and building a brand. Um, a brand isn't you know, what's in the AFR, a brand isn't what's on your website saying that you're awesome. Um, a brand is another founder uh, who's having coffee uh, with someone that you've invested in in the past. And your brand is what that existing uh, investment, um, uh, existing founder um, that you've invested in says to that new prospective founder. Do they say, go and speak to Nikki at Blackbird? Um, or do they say uh, something negative or something else or um, I wouldn't recommend it or that that's the definition of um, a brand and reputation. And, um, and again, unless you're willing to do the hard work uh, day by day, unless you're willing to um, uh, uh, have a long-term mindset and so many people optimize for the short term, not the long term. Um, and that's always been so important to us at Blackbird to uh, live the values, not, you know, not, not headlines on websites. Um, it's, it's living the values and that ultimately creates a, um, a recommendation engine or a referral network or a, um, and, and that that's how you get to, to meet the best people yeah. and to have the opportunity to, to, to invest. Absolutely. And, and when you have, when you do believe in those values and you live those values as an individual, easy enough, but as you grow your team, you bring on some analysts, some associates, some venture partners, some other general partners before you know it, maybe you're a team of 10, 15, 20 growing, you've got mentors in your star accelerator. What's been the um, thinking around scaling those values and that culture that you just um, so well articulated? 
yes, uh, well, you have to say what are your cultural values. You have to say what are your uh, operating principles and you have to live up to them and people's performance need to be measured against them. Um, you need to uh, showcase people when they live up to those values and operating principles. And, and um, if they don't, you need to give them private one-on-one -on -one feedback as to where they didn't live up to it and, and so on. Um, as, as we've grown also, think of it as a hospitality business um, and uh, you need to measure um, exactly the experience that you're delivering to those customers. And so in both the case of us saying no to someone, we'll send an MPS survey um, a week after they interacted with a member of the Blackbird team to ask them um, about their experience with that Blackbird team member. It's all anonymous. It's all lightweight. Um, but um, over a year, you accumulate um, enough sample um, to know in general, are we offering a great experience to those um, uh, people? Are we being respectful? Are we saying no for the right, like uh, specific reasons and sharing those specific reasons? Are we, uh, we have a service level agreement with founders that it will take us two weeks to get to uh, a no and four weeks to get to a yes. And so are we living up to that um, timeline of the entrepreneur? Um, are we letting, as I said, are we letting them, uh, uh, are we saying no? Um, quickly because ultimately um, there's a very finite amount of fundraising time that that founder has and um, they need to be spending it on the highest prospect targets. Um, and so a quicker no is, is a lot better than um, a slower no. And so um, measuring MPS, measuring MPS on different types of um, uh, uh, members of the team and categories of members of the team. Um, uh, and again, it's just, it's a lot of day by day, getting better and better, hard work, taking mm -hmm. feedback, reacting to feedback, um, uh, uh, building a culture that recognizes and celebrates when people does uh, when people do um, uh, offer a great experience and um, and people who want to hear negative feedback and correct and improve and upgrade themselves in, in in future experiences. So, I would say it's that hospitality mindset. And um, and again, you're only you can't just say that. You have to measure yourself to whether you live up to that. And that's certainly we do. We do that when we say, uh, as I said, when we um, when we say no to someone, when we say yes to someone, we also give them a more sort of in-depth survey around um, uh, their interactions and um, how we were at different parts of the process, and we take that feedback and 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 improve on it and 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 um, try to get better every single Absolutely. day. Absolutely, and I think uh, when it comes to taking on feedback and uh iterating or changing the way you do things that requires a sense of one intellectual humility and two emotional um intelligence as well so hiring people that have those sort of characteristics so that they're fine taking on feedback as opposed to someone who doesn't want to hear you could have done this better um and sees that as a threat of some kind so i think uh no doubt you're doing that kind of thing but um the market at the moment nikki obviously it's been hit over the past 12 months with everything that's going on in, in the economy globally, amongst other factors. Uh, we've seen seed valuations and pre-seed more or less do okay. I think pre-seed's actually gone up based on a recent annual list report, but later stage rounds, series A, B, C, D, growth stages are coming way back down in some cases. Um, a lot of companies with single digit um, valuation multiples at the moment, particularly SaaS companies. Um, I mean, how is this? How how are you guys responding to all of this? And uh, I guess the more important question for our listeners, and particularly founders listening to this, like, what's your advice for founders, particularly say later stage founders, trying to navigate this storm they find themselves in? Yeah. Um, I, look, first of all, in general, today is a footnote in his in history. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting to talk about this today. 
Um, it will not be interesting to talk about today in, in, in 10 years' time. It will be a minor footnote on any kind of um, longer longer timeline arc. And so the, the most important thing as an investor is to not get too sad. Um, this year, the most important thing in 2021 was not to get too happy and, and ahead of yourself um, uh, in, in the good years. And particularly for those new investments and new seed round investments um, at Blackbird, we want to make exactly the same amount um, uh, every single year. So that translates into roughly about a dozen in Australia and about seven in New Zealand. And we just want to do that every single year and and not adjust that at all, uh, uh, regardless of this this sort of macro uh, environment. Um, you asked a good question at the end there, though, of those more developed companies and um, uh, uh, those uh sort of navigating a different fundraising uh, uh, kind of environment where uh, valuations are lower, um, expectations are higher. So the goalposts of of that round of funding have moved way higher in terms of the scale of perhaps um, revenue you have to have, the efficiency of the growth, the growth rates, um, all of those uh, bars have gotten a lot higher. Uh, and so even if you wanted to raise at a lower valuation um, than what you would have raised in 2021, um, it's 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 a lot more unlikely that you can. The transaction volume of of growth rounds has gone way down. The number of people investing in those growth rounds has gone way down, um, and um, that is a different environment. Um, the luxury, though, is if you are a developed company, you should you, if you have tens of millions of dollars in in annual recurring revenue as a software company, you can get to break even, and and you can have a independent path without capital markets in general. Like if you're you were due to raise and you're caught yeah. short in terms of your cash balance and you might need to raise a small amount of capital to smooth your pathway to that uh break even. Um but it's nothing it's not like a uh sort of what is surprising is um oh my God like people like profitability or oh my God like people like efficient growth. Like that's that was true in 2021. That's been true since the history of business and the history of time. And so um uh, people who are surprised um, that a good business is one that is growing efficiently and, and profitable, that's the surprising thing uh, for me. Mm-hmm. And so the in, in, a, in a later stage context, um, I would say at least there's that independent path to, to, to hopefully break even and, and running a profitable business. And then at the early stages, it's been less affected. I think um, the, the transaction volume is certainly down, um, but uh, not, not by too much. And... Um, Valuations are down, you know, but by any historical standard, are you know paradise compared to, um, you know, when we're starting out at Blackbird, for instance, in in 2012. Absolutely, I think in 2012, um, as a point of reference, Instagram raised their seed round post post product launch um, uh, at a two million dollar pre money valuation. Um, Air, Airbnb rose uh, raised their seed round post. Um, uh, product launch at a three million dollar pre money valuation. So I can tell you that those valuations are not correct, and they they should have been a lot higher. Um, and um, we know we know that the right seed round price is not two to three million dollars. Um, and then twenty twenty one, I think, taught us that um, hundred million dollar pre money valuations for an idea stage founder is not the right price for a pre seed round. So um, uh, I think valuations of seed rounds anywhere between ten and fifteen feel feel right. Um, knowing at the end of the rainbow there will be a, a company produced um, from Australia or from New Zealand um, that will go on to uh, earn billions of dollars of revenue within 
a decade or two of their their, their conception. Absolutely, and and definitely for your pre-seed, seed stage, even Series A startups, they've got a long sort of time horizon to exit. So if, if it's a good business, if you really believe in the, the people behind the business, what they're trying to do in the world, and they've got a good eight to 10 years ahead of them, what's happening in the market today really shouldn't matter all that much. Um, yeah. And even, even macro from a customer standpoint um, doesn't matter to a seed stage startup. If you can't, um, the, the risk is all internal of what you're doing, no one cares about. Um, and the first few million dollars of, of, of revenue are not affected by any kind of macro pullback or, or anything like that. It's, a, it's, it's an existential journey of, are you doing something that people care about? Um, and um, so, and sort of that, Initial growth is divorced from any kind of, you know, macro headwinds, tailwinds, whatever, you, whatever version of, of of what it is at the day, yeah, at, at the time they're starting. Definitely, mate. And uh, earlier in the conversation, you did say that Blackbird was not just one of the biggest or best performing Australian funds, but one of the best performing in the world. If we look at the uh, net um, internal rate of return, so the, the annual returns on every dollar invested in your funds, it's about fifty six percent. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, which compare that to say the average return in the say the S and P five hundred over the long term somewhere between nine to twelve percent depending on, um, and so if I put in a hundred thousand dollars and I'm getting those kinds of returns over ten years, basically we're looking at exponential growth. That hundred hundred k quickly becomes worth two million, four million, and so on. But the question I have for you currently, and this is not just an Australian thing, this is a global thing, where to invest in a venture capital fund, you typically need to be a sophisticated investor with net assets above a certain amount or a net income above a certain amount. And therefore, that typically locks uh, everyday retail investors out of the asset class. And so there's an argument that people make that venture capital just means venture capital is a vehicle to help the rich get richer while everyone gets everyone else gets left behind. Now, in a world where people can put money into penny stocks or NFTs or things of that sort without being sophisticated investors, it seems crazy to me that retail investors can't get a piece of venture capital. What are your thoughts on this and on the regulation that seems to permeate this asset class around the world? Yeah, look, on the regulation um, piece, I can very much tell you that a... uh, Person with money doesn't mean they're sophisticated. There are so many uh, rich people that I've met that are not sophisticated investors. So this uh, definitional, uh, like the label of sophisticated investor, is just um, preposterous. Um, to yeah. say that someone who you know got given their money uh, because of something that their parents did um, is sophisticated versus someone who works at like a, a technology startup and knows the 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 need for different products and knows the market and knows who who um, is hiring the best people in the in in the Sydney Melbourne Auckland wherever it might be uh, so to to say that that person's unsophisticated um, and to say the other person's sophisticated is preposterous so I think um, uh, if you want to make if you want to use a word like sophisticated then you need to tie it to an educational test not a um, not an asset test and so at the moment it's like kind of rich people rich people can afford to lose money. And, and and that's that's probably the headline, um, but I would also disagree with um, the premise of the question because um, I think uh, at least with Blackbird and 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 many others of the uh, Australian venture ecosystem or the larger funds, um, most of the money, as you said, comes from the Australian super funds um, or the future fund. Um, and if you uh, again take that one step 
um, back. It's 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 the millions of Australians um, retirement via this superannuation vehicle that benefits from Canvas success and um, all of the other uh, technology progress that that comes from uh, Australia and New Zealand. So. By dollar weight, um, I don't have an exact figure, but it's the vast, vast majority would be to the members of Host Plus and Aussie Super and Aware Super and Hester and Telstra Super and Care Super and NGS Super and the Future Fund. It's like the list goes on. And so um, those are the ultimate um, beneficiaries of um, uh, the success that um, Australian and New Zealand startups enjoy. So I, I, I do like that. A circle of of capital, um, and and in the end, the success is for every Australian uh, via their retirement um, uh, superannuation uh, savings. Uh, so so mm-hmm. uh, that's in general. But uh, I agree for those who would like to adjust uh, their exposure higher or, or to do it more directly, um, that's simply not possible um, with the with the sort of regulatory regime and um, the different sort of financial service license obligations and and, and so on and so forth. So um, it does happen, but it happens through this indirect manner via the the, the superannuation savings. Yeah, I guess uh, absolutely right. And that's a fantastic point um, about the exposure via super funds. Um, I think it's really just if people want to increase their exposure and also access the liquidity from that exposure sooner than you know their 65th birthday or whatever it is nowadays. But um, moving on from that question, uh, Nikki, just in the interest of time, obviously AI is a big thing. Everybody's talking about AI right now. Um, I looked at the stats before on CB Insights. It looked like AI or generative AI startups accounted for more than half of the mega rounds in funding in Q1 of this year. Um, so there are valuation markups in the in the mega rounds as well, but typically it's going to some big gen AI startups. And I guess a question I have for you, I have it's probably a three three prong question. We'll try and keep keep the answers brief on this, but um, I guess the first one is on. To me, it seems like it's early with like all these gen AI tools. It feels like 1994, we had, you know, ask um, Jeeves and all these search engines back back then. And I feel like most of what we're seeing today, and I could be completely wrong, but I feel like 99% of these tools that we're seeing are going to fall by the wayside. Um, so how are you guys thinking about this in terms of AI, investing in AI tools versus investing in companies that are really good at being AI powered versus maybe there's a third class that comes along, which is new business models we didn't even think about powered by AI? Like what's the general sort of thinking on this um, new emerging class? Yes, I uh, agree with all of those points. Um, I, I would say, um, I would say first of all, 95% will fail, but that's 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 the way things are achieved in the world. And um, people with all different uh, diversity of thought in terms of how the world should work and different products that, that people need and so on, um, it is it is um, productive for society to attempt uh, many different um, angles and many different types of um, uh, products and, and and markets and so on. So um, the fact that most uh, to to nearly all will fail um, is actually a feature of of how we um, progress as a society, not a, yep. not a bug. Um, it obviously hurts if you're one of the ninety five percent that do fail and 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 so on. But um, at a society level, um, the world benefits when so many people um, uh, go on these explorations and and, and journeys of discovery. Um, then um, there is sort of two different types um, of of AI company. There there is the talked about kind of open AI, ten billion dollar deal with Microsoft, titans of industry sort of um, budging up against each other. Um, 
And that's certainly a type of AI company, um, uh, and, and, and they are certainly an AI company um, uh, in terms of the large language models and the foundational kind of technologies behind um, uh, uh, making what's possible today. Uh, then, but then a much larger category uh, of, of companies is when you have this technology shift, um, it kind of opens a window for every existing software category for the leaderboard to be reshuffled. And so what I mean is like, if you rewind back and we went from on-premise to the cloud, um, that moment allowed Salesforce to rise up to number one in the CRM software rankings uh, leaderboard. Um, it enabled uh, whoever it might be, Workday to uh, displace all of the existing HR uh, uh, software providers and rise up the leaderboard and ServiceNow with IT service and they rose up to leaderboard. So when a technology platform shift happens, the leaderboards of all of these companies' uh, categories get reshuffled. Um, so um, you're going to see uh, a Cambrian explosion of different companies that will build the next generation of a customer support SaaS um, uh, product or uh, uh, whatever whatever it might be because um, uh, there's this chance for the leaderboard to be reshuffled. It's also why you see, um, you look at Atlassian's most recent user uh, uh, kind of product day, everything was around how they're infusing AI into their product um, suite. Uh, if you look at Canva Create, which is their user conference, everything was about um, how they're reinventing Canva with AI at the heart of it and how AI is the number one thing for every single employee of, of, of Canva. And so um, you get this leaderboard reshuffling moment where all of those existing leaders will, will, will um, uh, unless they change, unless they stay ahead of the curve, um, uh, they won't, you know, they, they will go down the leaderboard and then from a startup's point of view, this is their moment. This is the chance to say, here's, here's how the, the, the category could work with this new um, uh, amazing uh, possibility of, of, of AI and they have the chance to rise up the leaderboard. So um, all of those big, big rounds, um, that, that's in the kind of AI foundational large language model. And, but I think you'll see hundreds, thousands of uh, uh, kind of rounds that relate to um an AI angle of attack of trying to raise up, rise up the leaderboard of these um, uh, existing software categories. Absolutely. And if one, one thing that technology has done progressively over the past, say, 25 years has just lowered the barriers to entry for anyone wanting to start a business, especially when we moved from on-prem to cloud, it just made it so easy for anyone to start a, a software business and scale up as they needed to with a you know flick of, a, of their wrist, essentially. Um, and now it seems that with AI, that will become even more so the case, like times 100, whereby you won't need as many resources to start a company and grow a company um, by the sound of things. So there is an argument that some people are making, which is, well, it's like the indie hackers using AI versus the venture-backed startups. Now, I imagine the venture-backed startups are the one that, which is pretty much the case today, that want to build a company that's going to be you know, worth tens of billions of dollars. The indie hackers, they might build a nice lifestyle business generating millions of dollars, but maybe not going anything beyond that. Like, what's, what are your thoughts on this sort of tension right now between indie hackers and venture-backed startups when it comes to AI enabling teams of two or three people to operate like a team of 20 or 30? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it certainly evens the playing field. Um, and then, you know, the, the they're not separate segments um, of, of people and even... Um, uh, look, if you look at the journey of Atlassian for the first, I think, 10 or 11 years of its life, it was an indie hacker business. Um, and, and that was the first 
time that they took a round of venture capital, but um, the company has had a single personality across its 20 plus years of um, existence. And so um, in some way that that is an artificial uh, segmentation, but uh, from the point of view of like a uh, two or three person team competing with a hundred person team, like that, that's the exciting part um, uh, of, of uh, potentially AI offering this, uh, huge amplification of, of 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 what a small team can do, um, and 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 you know, keen to see how it all plays out. And then also, um, um, even though you had these big breakthroughs from OpenAI, just the speed in which open source projects have risen to offer an alternative uh, that has been mind mind boggling. Mm. And so even the idea that OpenAI will be the single winner and um, get all the money, um, I actually doubt that very much because um, you look at all the other software categories, uh, it all goes to open source, whether it's a database, whether it's an operating system, whether it's a whatever, whatever, um, open source kind of wins out in the end. And um, open source, even though it's not as good as GPT-4, um, on a long enough timeline, open source kind of runs over um, any any kind of closed source private company. Um, and, and so uh, even from the point of view of two people doing something, um, definitely hardware will be a cost, but even two people doing something amazing with AI with a $0 software cost, if they want to do it, you know, a, a lot of the work themselves, um, that, that's even that's even um, better, I think, for the world. Absolutely. Well said. And, uh, mate, we are almost out of time. I feel like I've got enough questions to go for another hour, but I will uh, end it in a few minutes. But I will end with a what I like to call a red button question, uh, where we discuss issues that perhaps aren't comfortable to discuss but need to be discussed. And, uh, you know, I've had my run in trying to sell my consultancy with diversity quotas. And reading the Startmate website, I saw that you guys made an explicit call not to implement diversity quotas. I'd love for you to just talk through the high-level thinking around why that was the case, because quotas seem to be permeating a lot of organizations nowadays, typically at the top end of town. Um, and I think there's some really good thinking in uh, the decision that you guys made not to pursue quotas? Uh, maybe not categorize it so much on, the, on that angle. Um, uh, okay. And if you look at Startmate itself with the accelerator, it's 50-50 diversity um, on, on, a, on a gender basis. And um, I think Startmate has done uh, uh, so much more than any other uh, in terms of that, that diversity progress. In Blackbird, if you if people want to check out um, uh, the Blackbird blog, uh, blackbird.vc is the website, um, we recently uh, set out goals, uh, not quotas, goals around um, gender diversity and uh, specifically measuring it very closely through the top of the very top of the funnel, right down to the uh, meeting and um, IC pitch and um, eventual term sheet and, 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 yep. and funding and so on. And so um, I think with anything that you want to change, um, you should measure it, number one, set goals around it, number two. And, and so if you measure it uh, in detail, you can test hypotheses, you can test initiatives, you can measure the impact of those um, initiatives on the funnel and on the, on, on the makeup. And so um, uh, check out the blog for more in detail uh, as to what we did uh, as an investment team at Blackbird. Um, but essentially, I think on diversity, it needs to progress, the way to progress, measure it first, act with um, the awareness of that, come up with a hypothesis as to how you could change it, undergo activities to, to try and change it, measure those activities, adjust, 
you know that 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 iteration loop um, of um, measure, uh, launch, measure again, launch, measure again, launch, so on and so forth. Absolutely, and uh, doing so in a way that doesn't compromise your what we say or what I'm reading here is a merit-based selection process as well. Right. Mm. So, and uh, even just the Blackbird team member, uh, how we hire, we use um, actually, it's a Blackbird investment. Um, first of all, it came via the uh, investing in Applied, which is a company that allows you to run a blind recruitment process where you don't see the person's name, you don't see yeah. the person's resume, um, you get them to answer a series of questions related to their role. People then market in a team setting, and then you sort of that next stage of the interview is is when you get to know them um, uh, uh, as sort of names and 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 people and work experiences and and so on. So um, that that blind first step um, has been transformational in mm. in um, uh, assembling Blackbird with a cast of characters that are not from central casting um, and um, you know highly recommend um, people check out Applied um, if they're building their own team or um, uh, hiring, it's it's the best way to select um, talent in my mind. Fantastic. Or even if you want to take a general principle um, of judge people on their work rather than, you know, uh, what they say, where they worked um, uh, and so on. So try to, you know, give them a task, work, work on a question, work through an example, uh, judge judge that first recruitment step on that Um uh, and 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 I think you'll get a better person at the end of the hiring process. Absolutely. And uh, just on on that, Startmate has done a whole bunch of stuff to recruit more diverse and and female people, uh, females to to the table. Um, like refreshing the website, bringing on more female mentors, running more in person meetups um, and events with female entrepreneurship groups, and uh, running outbound sales um, like processes to target more female founders. And that resulted. Uh, in a 70% increase of applications from gender diverse companies and a 50% increase in the number accepted, which is fantastic. Um, so I think we are just about out of time, Nikki. Um, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Um, want to congratulate you on all your success thus far with Blackbird and Startmay and hope it continues. If people want to connect with you uh, or maybe they're a startup founder who wants to uh, send you, send Blackbird their pitch deck, best place to go. Nikki at blackbird.vc um, or hit me up on Twitter. Perfect. Too easy, mate. I'll add that to the show notes for our audience. Nikki, hope you uh, enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for joining me today on Future Squared. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.